This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked UX researcher Becca Hare what's her biggest challenge with designing for Facebook, and here's what she said. I would say that Facebook is a very global product, and it's really hard to build a product that works for 2 billion people. It can be really challenging to prioritize which people you build for at which time. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Fall Creek Software is looking for a design engineer for Glitch. And here at Revision Path, we're looking for a design writer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Whether you're into design, coding, music, or art, Glitch is the right tool for you. You can start from scratch or remix any of the available projects and make them your own. And if you get stuck on something, just raise your hand and get help from the Glitch community. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up today for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Did you know that the number one email marketing priority is personalization? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. You only want to hear from the people and businesses that you like. And MailChimp helps make that happen with their robust campaign builder and a host of helpful automations. It's email marketing with a personal touch. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to visual journalist Michael Grant, creative director at the San Francisco Times, who is currently a John S. Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford University. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Michael Grant. I am a John S. Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford University. It's a 10-month fellowship for a journalist to kick around the tires on an important journalism issue that they've identified. And I'm also a creative director at the San Francisco Business Times, and I've taken a leave of absence to do the fellowship. Oh, nice. Okay. 
Let's talk more about this fellowship because uh, the fellowship, I know you're working for a newspaper, but the fellowship is kind of specifically in journalism. Is that right? That's correct. What's a typical day like for you then at the fellowship? We're able to design our own schedule each quarter. So Stanford is on a quarter system. And what really what I've done is looked at my schedule over the three quarters and try to be very, really strategic about how I wanted to spend each quarter. So each quarter has been really different and we're in our final quarter now. So a typical day, Mondays, we have these things called backstories where each fellow is able to, you know, take an hour and a half to just really kind of talk about their story of how they enter journalism, what informs their journalism, life's experiences. So each fellow gets a chance to do that. And we've kind of spread them out over the course of the year here. So we have those. They're usually later in the day. Some fellows take a lot of classes. I've taken a max of maybe three classes and the third one being a lecture. And you really just have your span of the table. There may be a handful of classes that aren't available to fellows for various reasons, maybe other fellowships or exclusivity of a particular program. But it's really flexible. So I end up doing things like my research, calling different sources to have conversations about my particular journalism project. You know, I end up going to a class. I've done some self-work here and, you know, just kind of working on taking hitches out of my own, like personal hitches, just trying to work some kinks out. And then really just having fun with these fellows and having some really great conversations about journalism and, and how they're attacking their own journalism problem. So I guess the biggest question that I have to ask here, you know, you coming from this creative director position, why journalism? Why this fellowship? You know, I've I've been working in news design for a while, and I noticed a few things early on when I was on the print side of journalism. I did notice that there weren't a lot of African-American designers. And also there would always be like a handful of people of color who are doing the design work. I mean, and there are some areas of journalism that where visual people are more widely represented. Typically, it would be like photography or video. For whatever reason, I have no idea. But I noticed that early on. And then when I moved into the digital side of journalism, I noticed the same problem. And it was even worse. So that's some of it. And coming from a black college, I just had a really great an amazing black college experience. And I really came into my own as a journalist and a designer. So our program at Grambling really did a great job of marrying the two. And we had all the resources like a student newspaper to sort of support that. So I noticed also that, that it was, you know, it, it wasn't like when I came in and that I'm not seeing a whole lot of HBCU journalists sort of being the next crop of visual people. There were some great visual people when I was in school. And you had Angelica on on the show before, too, and that's a good friend of mine. So there ain't a whole lot of Michael Grants and Angelicas running around, you know, uh, these days. And (laughs) so that just, uh, you know, stuck out to me. And so I was I was uh, I've taken a job at the San Francisco Business Times. But before I took the job, I had applied for the fellowship because I run this program at ONA that that brings HBCU students in. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to use that fellowship year to really tackle this problem of like onboarding HBCU students into digital journalism? And so I applied with, you know, with that at sort of the the center of my application that I really wanted to understand more about 
what's impacting the entry of journalists of color into journalism and digital media. I didn't think that I'd like still have a, a sea of visual people specifically, you know, after my program or after I build something, but at least I can also kind of be considering those folks who do have a big interest in sort of the design and development side or product side of journalism. You know, maybe that I could create something that could get them interested in what's available in journalism now. What have your findings been so far from all this research? All of this research. I mean, I feel like I've done just a number of interviews. You know, I, I went back and I talked a little bit to past HBCU fellows just to kind of get more in touch with their personal story of how they stumbled upon the fellowship, for instance, the HBCU Digital Media Fellowship at ONA that I run. You know, some of them will hear about that. And I'm like, well, how'd you hear about it? Or like, what are you learning in school? What fascinates you about journalism today? And so that's been interesting just to kind of hear why people are interested. I think Twitter has a, a big impact on, you know, sort of uh, journalism, activism, and, um, and just activist issues. And so that being a digital space, that's been like a big driver, I think, of interest. I've also learned a lot by actually going to HBCUs and making a visit. So I did this really intensive trip maybe about a month ago. And so just before spring break, I flew out to Louisiana to my alma mater. And they had a journalism conference and I was invited pretty early on to be a speaker. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if I just extended that trip and visited as many HBCUs as I possibly could. So I ended up going to Jackson, Mississippi to visit Jackson State. Then I drove down to New Orleans and I visited uh, Xavier and I visited Dillard. And I was supposed to make it to Southern, but we just had some scheduling issues. So that didn't quite work out, but I've been talking to them. But what I'm learning is that like, you know, that HBCUs have been like this huge supplier of black journalism talent for some time. And I feel like with each advent of technology, you know, you probably have like black colleges trying to keep up. And then, you know, all of a sudden like, yo, that's out of our reach. And then like, you know, they start making slow steps to finally get to that place where the industry might like start settling. So I feel like right now HBCUs are at this place, particularly the journalism programs, a lot of them, I won't put them all in the same box, but they have these various factors that are affecting them, be it financial or administrative turnover or new regimes coming in. The journalism programs are uh, end up being affected and it's just having an impact on what students end up getting exposed to. But I'm finding that ed, like faculty there needs to be more resources for faculty. And I, I was approaching my problem is like, yo, it's students that need training. And yeah, they do. But, yo, like faculty, like those are the ones who see students like all their four years. Like there really needs to be some kind of intervention or added resources or some kind of external body that's really focused on the black college educator. Yeah, we've had several HBCU educators as well as just black educators at other schools. And they've mentioned, you know, very much that similar thing of needing the resources. And, you know, sort of like you said with HBCUs, I mean, I've done research on the design and back when I was part of AIGA's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, 
you know, looking at schools that offer design and arts programs and sort of where do the students go from there? Do they have what they need in order to become sort of active members of this community, to become productive members of this community? Like, can they get a job with the skills that they've learned at an HBCU or will they need to supplement that with additional education outside, either from another school or self-taught or something like that? I mean, it's interesting that journalism has those same kinds of parallels. One thing that I thought was, or I guess that I can ask you about this, uh, when I was doing my research with HBCUs and then also kind of looking at what parents were thinking in terms of their children going into design careers, they always sort of looked at design as kind of a hobby or something to do on the side, not necessarily looking at it as a viable career choice. Have you talked with parents that have kids at HBCUs? And if so, sort of what are their thoughts um, in terms of their children going into that field? Well, I definitely agree with, you know, that that idea. It totally exists. You told and I was I was uh doing some backgrounding on you, in fact, and ran into your, your work and you reported a little bit about uh Shura Miller being early black designer and so I dug up a lot of her work. You know, way back when she was at Pratt, she was writing about these things that it's not taken seriously. And so it's it's just kind of crazy that, you know, that still exists. And then my fiance, she's African. She's from Sierra Leone. And like we were just having this discussion yesterday, like it's crazy how certain professions will be favored over others. And it kind of just boils down to exposure to new professions. You know, maybe it's more real when people can see, oh, this is what designers are doing or this is what product people are doing so that. You know, there, I think there's just a lot of assumptions that are attached there. It's, I hate to say it, but it's, it's just a bit of ignorance that's just longstanding. And this is probably more of the reason why we should have people who are successful, particularly people of color who are successful in these areas, to really extend an olive branch and reach out to parents if it's, you know, sort of the household thing or educators if they're trying to steer students from careers in design. But we should really like do a good job of connecting with people who have some of the wrong ideas about what design means. So what is kind of your ultimate goal then from this fellowship when your 10 months are done? I think it's how long you said it was, right? 10 months? Yes. Yes. 10 months. Once it's done, what's kind of your ultimate goal from this? Yeah, I'm like still trying to figure it out, honestly. Um, <laughs> it's kind of scary. So really, there's this practical goal of like, wanting to be more established in my field, right? So I want to go back to designing and developing stories and products at a high level. I have a heavy interest in, you know, management of teams that think about these things. And so, you know, that's kind of a practical goal. You know, it's kind of the, the more sensible thing to do, like right after fellowship, you go into a job. What's scary, but what motivates me at the same time is the problem that I came in here with. And I feel like, you know, with things like sometimes maybe like activism or, or civil rights work might not be looked at as, oh, you know, can you make money doing that or whatever, right? But I think you can create programs that have impact and still allow you to, you know, sustain yourself, right? And they can be creative and they can be take different forms. So I'm more interested in developing something on my own, finally. 
I've always kind of gawked at the folks who are running things that are longstanding and awesome and built themselves like you, Maurice. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's really dope. So it's like, why don't I start doing? And so I'm at this point now where I'm literally like making plans to, to do whatever that is. And so it's, it'll probably be some kind of uh, programming that introduces design and design thinking to people of color underrepresented communities. I know there's been some talk recently about kind of eschewing design thinking. It mostly came from Natasha Jen, who is a she's a partner, I should say, at Pentagram, kind of eschewing design thinking as being the sort of manufactured way for companies to try to, I guess, capitalize on design. I wasn't really super clear on the argument. Needless to say, I don't really agree with it. But I know that there has been some talk about kind of the viability of design thinking as it currently is, because so many companies are starting to almost use it as a, a cudgel to kind of beat, you know, their clients over the head with in terms of maybe commanding higher rates or something like that, or trying to, I guess, <laughs> include more iterative steps in the design process to draw projects out or something, but not necessarily using it for the goals of what the project might call for. I don't know if you've heard any of that kind of talk behind that. Well, I believe it. You have a few different types, you know, you have like the naysayers that are like, oh, that's just marketing talk, you know, and then you have, you literally have clients and I'm, I'm sure you know, like how it is when, you know, you have a client and they're like, well, can you just change that font or can you just do what I asked you to do, but I'm hiring you to, you know, figure out a bigger problem that we have. Mm-hmm. So I think that the whole design thinking revolution is great because it allows the space to get organizations on board with thinking differently about the problem and then going about solving that problem in sort of an iterative and explorative way. But like, yeah, it, it could be used for like, and people, I'm sure organizations and, and people are like totally using it as a, as a means to get more money because how many people are coming to your organization talking about some design thinking, right? <laughs> so, yeah. It so makes you sound know. smart if you can yeah. throw that out. Like design yeah. thinking, oh, there's thinking in the phrase. So obviously there's some strategy there. That's right. <laughs> I'm interested to know more about your position at the San Francisco Times as creative director. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know you've been away from it for a while because of the fellowship, but what sorts sure. of things are you doing there? Yeah, so the Business Times was a real interesting move for me. I had a number of things that I was trying to mark off, check off the boxes. And one of them was a personal matter and in that I couldn't get my then girlfriend to move with me to Minnesota, where I was a senior digital designer at the Star Tribune. And I'll just give you a little bit of newspaper context. The Star Tribune is like, it's doing really well for local legacy journalism outlets. So I would say that they're best in the mid in the Midwest right now. And uh, a lot of people can agree. There's they have a single ownership, they got a brand new building downtown. So I thought Minnesota was a great place to put a stake in the ground and, you know, build a life and grow with the organization that was very mature and growing and enjoying their new ownership. But that didn't work out. It was too cold, uh, too <laughs> far, too far removed from you know, Northern California, where my now fiance's parents are. And so I figured, like, why don't I do something like apply for that fellowship, apply for some jobs and see what happens. And so 
the minute I saw a creative director at a legacy newspaper that's trying to do things online, I'm like, yo, that's a really good opportunity. Why don't I check it out? What I found in my interview process, it was, it was kind of funny. It was like a long, it took a very long time for me to sort of understand that they were really still very much print centric. And so the creative director's job would be to design news pages and oversee design of news pages by other designers, a very small stable of designers. But I figured, you know, this would be my first foray into, you know, managing projects. How often have I been able to sort of be at the helm? These are typically positions that pass me by for various reasons. Why don't I go ahead and start to get some of that knowledge and understanding of like how news organizations work at a management level and then start making some design decisions about what to do with our product. So I went there and what did I do? I, I did just that as it was print. It's been print pages with maybe some social media asset design. So it's, it, that wasn't sexy. And what I learned most, I think was the decision-making parts, you know, like how to negotiate for, a hire that you would like to make or managing expectations of designers that report to you or just, you know, odd social dynamics, like, like knowing that there's positions in the newsroom that the position in the newsroom that I feel that, you know, was of interest to people in the room. You manage all of these things and you learn how to like jockey and do all these things that I've never done before. So I really appreciated that part, like this learning part. And then three months after I got the job, it was like, oh, uh, you know, I got accepted for the fellowship. It was like, wow, this was great learning. Uh, I guess I'll do this for another three months before I step away. But they've been gracious enough to offer me uh, the opportunity to take a leave of absence. And so I feel like I just had a short lived experience in the time that I've been there. But I'm happy to report that that's the position that I hold. We have a really wonderful designer who's uh, backing me up right now, and she's incredible and it's just been a, a really good journey for me. Nice. Are you hopefully going to get a chance to branch into doing some digital stuff? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about the fellowship is that like, once you do it, you start to look at the world different, <laughs> you know, like the, the, the program does really has a phenomenal, phenomenal way of introducing new ideas to the folks who are in there. So, so I'm looking at the business times a lot differently um, as I am also looking at other possible opportunities. So, those are kind of the things that I'm tussling with right now. The Business Times, uh, like a lot of newsrooms, is run by, you know, like a corporate arm or, you know, they're under their corporate umbrella. So they are an American City Business Journals publication. It's run out of Charlotte. So I think given what I've learned here at Stanford, if I were to kind of get back into the swing of newsrooms proper, I'd want to go to the corporate side and maybe influence product design on that end of it, as opposed to sort of being uh, the receiver of what corporate decides, then doing the best you can with what you're given to work with. Now, I have a few questions here. Some of these are, like I said, these come from our community here, and they're mostly all around journalism, so hopefully you'll bear with me on that. For people that are That's listening, fine. I know this is a this is a design show. We're gonna get to some design stuff. Don't worry about it. So, first question, actually, I guess is kind of a good tie-in. Kojo wants to know how do you approach storytelling, and 
what techniques do you use to explain what you do? Wow. So the typical way that it happens is that, you know, you have a, a beat reporter, they cover their area or their topic. And since they cover this day in and day out, they kind of have their thumb on the pulse of what's happening. So when they recognize that there's an opportunity to tell a story, they pitch their editor. Editor, you know, talks to them with that about that story. And you're like, okay, we'll do this story. What do we need to, besides words, what do we need to tell the story? You know, do we need a photographer? Do we need a graphics assignment? Will this be an ambitious digital project? So once that all happens, that's when we get in the mix as a designer. So if you're a print designer, you start to understand how they've made the photo assignment. You want to get your hands around what photographer is shooting it. Or, you know, if there's a photo editor, you want to have an early conversation so that you can understand a little bit more about what's coming. And then you start designing as a print designer. As a web designer, you what's been happening sort of in, in the transition of digital is that the web designer is the last to know about everything and the pages are already kind of being baked and you're just picking up the pieces to put it online and all you have is this article well, you know, right? Like you can imagine WordPress, you just like sticking that photo in, text under, photo, text, headline, publish. And so how do you get out of that is the question. Like if there's an interesting story that has enough nuance or could be told in a more compelling way, how do you start to do that? I think if that's the question that you're asking at the beginning of the creation process, then you have more of an opportunity to impact how that story is told and use a different format. But oftentimes that's not the case. And so you're left trying to just do something that's more static or just kind of default. So most of what I've done in newsrooms is to beat the drum and say, hey, 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 like, if you have an idea or if this story is starting to sound like something that can be done differently, invite the designer. Let's have a table talk conversation and say, what's different about this story? What are you seeing that's interesting to you, a reporter? The photographer might go out. If it's a, a high stakes story, the photographer might go out and catch some great assets. Why don't we talk about those things and figure out what presentation does this lend itself to or what could we create as a, a more compelling way to tell the story using the digital media. Okay. And this is another question it comes from Paul, which is sort of related to this. Where do you see digital storytelling going next? Is VR the next frontier? So there's a lot about the practicality. I hate to kind of say things that you hear often, but there is a practicality part of it. Like how many people are walking around with a, a powerful machine in their pocket and a headset. And I think what happens like where it might be is that VR experiences are home experiences for the consumer that's really into VR. That's part of where it's going, I think. And there's a lot of ground to cover when it comes to if that's going to be the, the next frontier. I think it's part of a, a bigger picture. So VR is there. I think AR is super interesting and a lot more accessible, and we'll probably see more of that. I think it'll journalism will eventually adapt to being more agnostic to whatever the, these interfaces are. So 
I don't know what's, you know, how much stuff is being done to do things for like Apple CarPlay or what kinds of interfaces you can design for mirrors or obviously wearables are a thing. But I think that there's so much to be done and so few, in my opinion, designers and product people and, and journalists doing it. And there might be interest to do it, but the the ecosystem, you know, that the industry is still, you know, they have to create the jobs. They have to make that part of the agenda. And there are news organizations that are doing a lot to move in those directions, but there aren't enough. And so I think that's part of the problem is that until you have major resources being thrown around to do that, it'll just continue to evolve as slowly as it has. In your current position, do you see much of a difference between design and technology? Well, a difference. You know, yeah, I think there is a difference, but they should play ball together. So I feel like like with any production, you have the people who aren't seen and then you have those who are seen. So I feel like design is what you can see and technology oftentimes is what you can't. You just enjoy the experience. When PlayStations are shipped, all you get is the box, you know, and you get the software and the video game and you get the tools to have a good time. But how often is it that folks are thinking about the technologists who put the software together and maybe designers are the ones who get a chance to really shine with the interfaces that they've designed for that video game or something. So they are different, but the conversation should be inclusive of both sides and both sides should know a lot about each other. And I think some industries have really figured out the relationship they should, they should have. Apple being like, you know, a shining star in that technology and design are both thought of at a high level and holistically uh, together. Now, when I've been doing my research for this, this podcast, I saw that, you know, you started out in journalism and then you kind of ended up moving over to design, which I guess when you talk about now your work that you're doing with the fellowship and even the work that you're doing as a career director work, it makes sense that you're kind of melding the two, but what initially prompted that shift for you to go from journalism to design? For me, I would structure it this way. Like I knew, so I'll, I'll tell a little bit of my backstory. Like my older brother, he was just this incredible artist growing up. And so when you're the younger brother, you know, you're living in the shadow of older brother and he was great. We, you know, we shared art supplies but he ended up going off to art school. He went to the San Francisco Academy of Arts College. All that time to when he graduated high school, I was chasing illustration as a career or thinking that this would somewhere along the lines, some, down the line, I, I'd become some kind of artist or illustrator of some type. But when he left, I ended up moving into reading newspapers and being interested in how the Daily Breeze in Southern California, you know, like how they were doing these like interesting front pages of certain sections. Uh, we call them feature pages, but doing some cool design stuff like magazine, magazine kind of stuff in news. And I was like, well, how do you do that? Like, where is that happening? How can I learn how to do that? Right. So I hadn't made the relationship yet. I hadn't linked design and journalism or, you know, design and words until I got to college where Oddly enough, I was uh, designing, no, I was drawing the opinion comic at the Gramlinite and the visual communication teacher at my school was like, 
well, if you're, if you're drawing that for a newspaper, I think you should take my desktop publishing class. And so that was my introduction to thinking about uh, being a creative and content. You know, what does it mean to design content? And there is enough structure at the Grammonite where the graphics editor there or the visuals editor there, you know, knew how to shoot or just had a really great understanding and command of a, a camera. So he was shooting photos and also doing information graphics and then laying the paper out. And I was like, wow, this is essentially what it means to produce publications. So that's how I really got into publication design. It was like I had an understanding for words and I wanted to be a good reporter and I started on that path. And then I noticed that I could still use these creative skills that I've always had. And they were different than what my older brother was doing, you know, like, like he's being an animator and, you know, he went on to work for like Pixar and DreamWorks. He was, he's working on DuckTales now. I don't know if you're a DuckTales head, but they relaunched that and it's awesome. And I can be awesome in my own right and tell stories that aren't fiction, but the real life day-to-day democracy, like important for our democracy kind of journalism. I fell in love with that. And my mom and my dad are just total news heads. We grew up with the, you know, like all kinds of papers in our house, like from the LA Times, Daily Breeze to like the Black Papers, LA Watts Times, Final Call. I've always been sort of interested in words and the story, but I also get a, a chance to scratch my creative itch with design. Now, if there's a lesson that I think any of us can learn from over the past two years is that news has largely become a designed interaction. Like, and it's one that we've also seen can have pretty wide reaching results, like disinformation campaigns from domestic and foreign entities, computer generated counterfeit videos, like these things called deep fakes. I don't know if you, if you've seen those before and even using, you know, data that's been culled from popular social networks to, create idea bubbles and things like that. What are your thoughts on, on this kind of stuff? Do you think journalists have kind of adapted to change with all of these kind of technologies that are shaping how we even look and how we even perceive and I guess, watch the news in some cases? I think that we're at a place in journalism where more technologists are becoming a part of the conversation, right? So there used to be a time where none of those people really existed outside of the people who cover tech in a newsroom unless they were, you know, your IT person. So they're not in like thinking about what journalism has to contend with outside of that newsroom context. But now there are people coming from different disciplines, particularly in technology and with a real concern about what's happening and a real and who develop a real understanding about the importance of journalism and what newspapers do every day. And so now that we have a lot of these people at play, we're able to see some responses from the larger players in journalism, like the New York Times or the Washington Post, because they recognize what's happening. It might, And again, I think it just kind of speaks to pace. There aren't enough of those people in supply working in journalism, or we don't have enough money in journalism oftentimes to grow those teams. But 
ProPublica, for instance, they have a, a, a few people, I want to say, who look at algorithm bias, for instance. And so they did like some really heavy reporting on recidivism rates for African-Americans into the jail system and that there is an algorithm that was responsible for that. So, they, you know, it was, it would, it was biased against African-Americans and giving them um, a, a, a higher, marking them with a higher rate, committing an offense again. And you have to have like technologists who are interested in these things to check the systems around us. Like, like we've all in journalism, we've always been like, you know, checking, you know, corporations or checking the government. But now you have to check technology. And that's like, yo, like that's a, That's definitely speaks to the evolution of journalism and what's happening now. You need technologists to question the systems around us. What can designers and journalists learn from each other? To me, it goes back to like one of my most basic lessons in school where I was taking tests, desktop technology, desktop publishing. And, and what happened was my teacher was like, you can design really cute things or you can really study what needs to be designed and do that. I think journalists are at their core looking for the truth. And I feel like designers, like some of the best designers today are the ones that utilize tools like, you know, design thinking or user research or some problem solving bits to get to the truth of what needs to be designed as opposed to, you know, doing what looks cool or, you know, is cute or on trend. So I feel like the strongest designers can can learn a lot by thinking like journalists to some degree. And then on the flip, I think journalists can learn creativity in a different sense, you know, like a different approach. Like I used to always get floored a little bit by, you know, how the term design is often used not in the sense of creating a thing, but you can design a system, I suppose, right? Like, you know, like I feel like journalists need oftentimes to come out of the box and think more open-mindedly about what they're facing, what they're approaching. So a lot of my hangup, a lot of the time, working in journalism was that editors were really about writing stuff the same way. They were really interested in writing stuff the same way as opposed to looking at the story and thinking more holistically about like, what are all the pieces that we have here? Do you think you should shove that into a long form or do you think we should actually try to write for what we have here? which which could be like a different story form or not writing that part for this particular medium, but using audio or video for this component of the project. It's a relationship. And I think both sides have a lot to learn from each other all the time. Let's kind of, you know, switch gears here. I know we focused a lot on your career and we've talked about the fellowship and everything, but I kind of just want to talk about you as a person. I'm curious to know, you know, if there's anyone out there that's listening that wants to sort of follow in your footsteps and do what it is that you're doing, what kind of advice would you have for them? If design and journalism is what you're after, or if product and technology and journalism is what you're after, there are really wonderful avenues to get started with that. I would suggest going to a meetup event. There's an organization called Hacks Hackers Mm -hmm. that really kind of brings together journalists and technologists. There's the Online News Association where you can find both journalists, technologists, and designers. 
And there are, let's see, oh, NICAR is kind of one of the really dope ones where there's a lot of data journalism being discussed and they do have like local communities for that. So journalism is really good about supporting communities and creating communities and folks stick together. And and we love when people come in and and want to know more about it. And as far as design, you know, I've always loved design just because of its practicality, right? Like you can learn uh, some of the basics of a design and then apply it to everything. And so for me, uh, taking what I learned in, in design in school and then looking at journalism, I just thought, wow, like this is really awesome to, you know, think about words and how do we tell the story visually? I guess that's in the legacy sense, you know, like if you're coming from a radio side or a television side, they're already thinking about like how to stage that shot or, you know, what kind of ambient sound do we want? But it's so all encompassing and awesome. And I think it's just, just a matter of knowing like a few of the people and the resources who are out there and then getting involved, you know, like having some conversations with people and maybe shadowing, going to a newsroom and, and seeing breaking news happen. Oh, it's amazing. All the, the manpower that goes into it. And then this expectation that this needs to go out online, like in hours or 20 minutes, it's a thrill. And, you know, I think newsrooms, know that their jobs are important. So they'd be happy to open their doors and and show people to folks that can answer questions. Who are some of the people that have helped you out in your career? Wow. So I'll give it to the upperclassmen at the Gremlin at the time. They were all sort of these superstars in their own right. They had all kinds of internships and stuff. I've done a lot of student development work as a student, as a beneficiary, I should say. So I worked on student projects, and that's where I met a woman named Carla Broyles, who is a black designer at the Washington Post, and she's still there. She's amazing. Cynthia Curry at the New York Times, also a, a black woman designer. She's awesome, so she's helped me along the way. And then I've had people like supporters, you know, like when you tell people, hey, oh, like there should be more, you know, black folks doing this. That's kind of how I got the ONA fellowship. The ONA HBCU fellowship started was because the director ONA, a black guy named Irving Washington, you know, he recognized that I was in the student newsroom. So at conference every year at NABJ or a lot of these affinity group conferences will have a student newsroom. And so I was able to work in one of those. And then now I kind of give back and I use it as a way to kind of understand like who's coming into journalism and, you know, like up and coming talent and just to give back, you know, to say thanks for having a program that helped me out so much. But Irving kind of checked that program out and he was like, yeah, we're throwing around this idea about doing this for HBCUs. And that's kind of how it happened for me. So, yeah, so I, supporters are, are huge. And like the, the Knight Fellowship, you know, kind of got behind me and um, really believed in what I was trying to do. And, you know, so Don Garcia is a, the program director. Uh, she's just been an amazing mentor at this point in my career and trying to establish the bravery to, you know, go off and, and do my own thing and support my mental state, you know, from working so hard and oftentimes not being recognized at the table just to accept me into this program and say, like, yo, like what you're doing matters. And, you know, we're here to help support you and sustain you. Do you have a dream project that you'd love to do or love to work on? Like, Maybe after the fellowship or something, is there something you'd like to do? 
My website's really old and I haven't touched it in a long time. Like a lot of the, the links are broken, but I started on the path a long time ago, um, trying to d- develop a an HBCU magazine. And it's so funny, like sometimes like when I get the opportunity to talk, I, I notice how much I, how often I say HBCU and how important those are to me. But I think they're for me and my experience, they're just really transformative of my ideas of the black experience in that I met so many people from different walks of life and, you know, different classes from different areas of the country. And it was just amazing, you know, all that happened in, in this little this little town in Louisiana. And so, like, given the media climate and the fact that you have all these digital resources that are available, all of these amazing services, and still there seems to be, like, a shortage of really hot, like, Black journalism happening, you know, like, all Black for Black kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I really want to develop one of those kind of upstarts. And I think it'll be an HBCU publication. And I got some ideas on how to uh, jump that off. But I tried it a long time ago as sort of forward thinking, you know, iPad only kind of publication. And Adobe Publishing Suite was just like, God awful expensive. And like, you know, you have to just be so like, privileged to afford this stuff. So the bar was really high to like the barrier of entry was really high to like to do it that way. But I think now you know, it could be as easy as um like podcast. Well, not easy, but like I could have different avenues that are easier to execute than designing an entire publication. So I, I think of like maybe podcast segments or maybe some video ideas to doing segments that way. And then maybe like having a series of stories coming out that are really around like education and blackness, right? Like I think when we only talk about HBCUs as the black educational experience, you know, a lot is lost and that there needs to be more of a conversation happening on both sides of that equation. So, you know, like the the black experience for a person of color at a PWI, like it's real. Like I've heard some incredibly disappointing stories of experiences that folks are having going to these great schools that aren't built for them and those stories should be told or you know what's happening for people who go and don't get the support that they need there's just all kind there's just a whole world of stories that need to be told and i think there should be more of a resurgence of you know new media startups that are focused on people of color and communities of color what do you think you would have been if you didn't go down this path I used to love video games. And so, you know, I I imagine one time I'd be a game creator. Like I thought I'd do the animation thing like my older brother. Architecture was kind of cool. Like my dad, he works in the trade. He does custom hardwood floors in L.A., high-end residential commercial. So, like, I got a chance to see ridiculous houses. And I thought, you know, like, what if I, you know, became the designer of houses? And then I thought, like, when we started looking at commercial projects, like, oh, office buildings, like, those are awesome. Like, I love skylines. I love sight lines on a building and that kind of thing. So I don't know. I I think I've always been interested in something that was visual, clothing design. Oh, my goodness. Like, I know why I like this brand and not that brand. It just so happened that that I found what I was interested in enough to develop 
in such a way that I, I began to be good at it. And Grambling for me just had kind of all the pieces there. But I wonder too, like maybe I would have been something with construction because my father is such a foundation, you know, that maybe I would have uh, pushed further in something where the context, like where I had a context to kind of go back to that's more foundational for me. And so because my dad is that, maybe I would have done some more construction related work. Where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? Have you thought that far ahead? In five years, I want to say that I've made a major contribution to journalism. I just had this online, this ONA call, the Online News Association call. And on the call, we, we share goals for whatever part of the program that we're contributing to ONA with. And so... I went back and opened up the web pages for the HBC fellowship and I've touched 21 black designers in five years through that program. And as a single person looking at 21 pe- people who I know very well, I-, I feel great about that, but it's not at scale. And so I want to, in five years, be actively working on solutions to journalism at scale. And I'm not quite sure what that looks like yet, but I know that the ecosystem needs it and people of color are more than interested in telling our stories because they need to be told. So maybe working on some kind of project that at the five-year mark and at 10, let's see, I'm 37, I'll be 47. Yeah, uh, that's maybe a little too far out, but (laughs) (laughs) maybe, you know, if if I'm really making money, maybe I'll like uh, build a journalism school or like a standalone D school type type thing for people of color. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Michael, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah. uh, So they can go to... If you Google Michael Grant JSK, I have a, a page on the website for the Stanford Fellowship. They can go to mikegrant.me as my personal website. I should be seeing a redesign pretty soon, probably by the time this, this program ends. And on Twitter, mikegrant.me. Feel free to hit me up, reach out, ask questions. I'm always happy to talk. All right. Sounds good. Well, Michael Grant, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the show. I really like that you sort of meld design and journalism together with what you do, not just with the work that you're doing with the fellowship, but also the newspaper work as well. Um, I think what I get uh, mostly from this conversation is that you really want to make sure that you're empowering black people to go into these fields. And if you want to be a publisher after all this, it sounds like that's kind of what the end goal is, is to be able to sort of control the publishing thing so you can employ people. I think that's a great idea and you're well on your way to doing it. So thank you again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for Maurice, Maurice for having me. And, uh, and really, I just want to uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in the space. It's, it's just such a needed conversation to have. And I am a longtime listener and um, look forward to many more guests. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Michael Grant and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Michael and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. 
Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But what's it like actually working there? You know, everything Facebook designs is done at scale, so design critiques, metrics, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. From games to art to music and hardware, Glitch is flexible enough to create some really powerful tools. You can even use it for work or to learn how to code. The possibilities are endless. So what will you create today? Get started at glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show, not just here in the U.S., but internationally as well. It helps the show overall by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode a little early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.